0: All right, we are looking, as I mentioned, at the Prophet Zechariah, and we are going to begin with that in just a moment. Let's go ahead and do our review. We've only got two more of these before we're uh, completely done with the minor prophets. All right, so Hosea, what's the keyword for Hosea? Harlot, right? You think of the hose and the harlot, the prostitute. And what's the analogy? What's the picture? What's that? Idolatry is what unfaithfulness. unfaithfulness. Idolatry is equated with uh, harlotry in God's eyes, and God being married to Israel in a spiritual sense, and God having a special covenant, and Israel continually going after those uh, those idol- idols, uh, God equated that to harlotry, and He used a living illustration of Hosea and his wife, whose name was. Gomer. That's exactly right. I always think of pile, but that's not right. You know, Gomer. Okay. Uh, Joel, what's the keyword for Joel? Locust. And God uses the backdrop of a plague of locusts to talk about an invading army. It's, uh, such that, uh, Israel would have never seen it. Okay. Uh, Amos. It's plumb line. Exactly. Y'all are tracking and, uh, I don't get to give your wife a hard time this evening she was cheating last week i think so it, but that's all right god measures uh, israel crooked israel against the plumb line of his word and if he finds them uh, finds them wanting and finds them crooked okay obadiah brothers keeper yes ma'am here's the Obed, and here's the two brothers that are the brothers keeper who is it a condemnation against edom and who is edom or who were descendants of edom excuse me, Edom was descendants of Esau, exactly, and as they stood across the banks of the Jordan River and watched their brethren be taken into captivity and being uh, invaded, they just kind of said, well, it uh, serves you right, basically, and they didn't help them, and God held them accountable for that. All right, uh, Jonah. Okay, Jonah is the fish. Uh, Micah. Day in court, you have the sun. It's in the court, and God calling to witness to all of the elements in order to uh, show how His people had been unfaithful and show how it was that He was condemning them. Right? Uh, The book of Nahum. Book of Nahum is a flood, exactly right. All right. Uh, Habakkuk, the watchtower, and Habakkuk is doing what in the book? Do you remember? It's unique in a sense. It's not God talking to uh, the people through the prophet, but it's the prophet talking to God on behalf of the people, okay? It's uh, uh, Habakkuk going and saying to God, God, how is it you're going to use? What's the question? A more wicked nation to punish a less wicked nation. you're going to use uh, wicked Babylon to punish uh, wicked Judah, even though wickedness of Judah is not as bad as it was uh, in Babylon. And then he stands on the ramparts, he stands on the watchtower, and says, "Whenever I'm corrected, I'll see how God's going to answer me." Habakkuk chapter two, right? And uh, that's that's the message of the book. Uh, last week we talked about Haggai, and it's the temple, temple. Okay, he's getting a hug from the eye. It's the prophet Haggai, and it is the temple. Um, what's the message of Haggai? What did we talk about last week that Haggai is trying to encourage the people to do? Go ahead and build the temple. Go ahead and finish the temple. As Janice said, that's exactly right. When you get to Zechariah, here's a Zechariah, okay? Doesn't exactly work, but uh, Zechariah is also about the temple. He's also about building the temple, but his his approach at doing so is um, a little bit different. Remember, Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They're in the same city at the same time, prophesying about the same thing and encouraging the people to do the same thing, and that is to get busy in building the temple. A um, couple of facts that are there listed on your sheet. And for those of you that didn't uh, get a sheet, uh, most of these will be here on the PowerPoint, but uh, you may follow along with you. Zechariah's main uh, name means Yahweh remembers or God remembers. He was from a priestly family. Haggai chapter, or Zechariah rather, chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the king of the, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, uh, the son of Edu the prophet. Okay, You look up some of those names and you realize that he was from a priestly family, uh, also back in Ezra chapter 5 and verse 1. Uh, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, he was both a priest and a prophet. There are over uh, 30 individuals that are called Zechariah in the Bible that you, can, uh, that you can clearly identify. This may have been the exact same Zechariah that Jesus referred to in Matthew 23 verse 35. In that context, uh, he was condemning the Pharisees, and you remember they were uh, making a statement saying, well, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have persecuted and killed the prophets like they did, and Jesus says, well, what you're doing is you're really testifying to the fact that you're the sons of those people that killed those prophets, okay? Um, Zechariah, it seems, was was one of the ones that was persecuted, and he was murdered uh, by the Jews. There's a lot of Zechariah that's written in apocalyptic language, okay? Um, it's sometimes compared to Revelation. If you just look at, which we'll look at in just a moment, the visions of chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through chapter 6 and verse 8, you'll see some figures and some pictures that are very, very similar to the picture that John received in the book of Revelation. And we'll talk more about apocalyptic language here in just a few minutes. But that's kind of the uh, the first half of the book. You'll find a lot of that about Jeremiah, or excuse me, Zachariah, seeing all these night visions, and then having to have somebody interpret them for him to understand exactly what it is that God is doing. Uh, it is the longest of the minor prophets. Uh, Zachariah is also the second most quoted Old Testament book. Anybody want to take a gander or guess at uh, what the first one is? What's that? Psalms is a good guess, but it's actually Isaiah. Is it? Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't realize I'd put that on there, so <laughs> you all cheated. There you are. Um, it's second only to Isaiah and Messianic references. Psalm is a good guess, uh, and certainly the Psalms are quoted a number of times in the New Testament, but Zechariah is second only to uh, Messiah. Note that the background of the book is the same as Haggai. Okay, um, The background is the same as Haggai. Remember that the first wave coming back from captivity after the 70 years in Babylon was led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. He's going to be very important, particularly in the book of Haggai and Zechariah, because he's the political leader. He's the governor. He's the one that is really uh, spearheading the effort to go ahead and build the temple back. Okay? So um, Zechariah, or excuse me, Zerubbabel, is commissioned by the Persian king Cyrus for the rebuilding of the temple. The return occurred in 538 B.C., and these are important dates to note. It occurred in 538 B.C., As they began to lay the temple foundation in 536, just two years after they got back, they laid that temple. And then how many years was it until uh, they actually began rebuilding the temple? It was 16 years. Exactly right. So from 536 all the way to 520, you've got just the open slab of the temple that's there uh, ready to have somebody build on it. But the people, well, what were they doing instead? Exactly. That's what the prophet Haggai condemns him for and says, uh, you know, the Lord says through Haggai, listen, you're living in your finished houses. You got nice rooms. You've got everything put away. And what about my house? And what did God withhold from the people because they built their own houses, but they didn't build his house from the book of Haggai? His blessings, the rain, there was a famine, there was a drought, right? There was a number of things that were going wrong for these people, and it should have been their first thought to say, maybe it is that we ought to go over here and rebuild this temple uh, before we do anything else, okay? Remember that the first half or the first portion of Ezra should also be read in conjunction with Haggai and Zechariah in order to get a sense of what these people are going through. Um, The Jews were supported for rebuilding a temple by King Darius in 520 BC, and the temple would be rebuilt. And this structure was the second temple, uh, which lasted from 520 all the way to 80-70. So just roughly uh, a little bit over um, uh, 500 years. All right. When you begin to actually look at the picture of what Zechariah does, and um, as he begins to go through this, as we look at the outline of the text, um, chapters 1 through 8... If you want to divide chapter 8 from chapter 9, chapter 1 through 8 really seems like the spearhead event. Sorry? Okay, I'm sorry. I thought I heard somebody. Um, Chapters 1 through 8 seem like they are particular to before the temple is built. Everything he's saying up until that point is all about, come on, guys, let's get busy. Let's build the temple. Let's build the temple. Let's build the temple. From chapter 9 all the way through chapter 14, you've got more of the emphasis on the Messiah who is going to come and bless this temple. And he's going to come and reign and uh, walk through this temple and uh, continue to use this temple. And so the emphasis and the the effort uh, of his writing from chapter 9 through 14 is on the temple and the Messiah and his relationship to that. Okay, Whereas um, Haggai approached it from more a motivational standpoint. Let's get busy and build this, uh, this temple. Let's get busy and do these things. Where Zacharias seemed to do is he goes into the psychology behind maybe why it is these people really haven't built their, uh, the, the house of the Lord. We'd mentioned also, Morris just mentioned it a moment ago from uh, Haggai, that the people got busy building their own houses. That was part of it, but that wasn't the total of the, the, total of the picture. There seemed like there was some fear and trepidation about world events and about being taken over again and being uh, singled out for persecution because they were trying to accomplish the word of work of the Lord. Um, There was shell shock. It seems like in a lot of cases for these people because. Uh, of course, they've been taken into captivity, but now they're concerned about maybe uh, saber rattling and people that are, you know, nations that are uh, threatening against nations. And they're looking at this from, you know, strictly from a fear standpoint to say, we don't want to get busy doing this and make ourselves a target, paint a target on our back in order to uh, to to have the, the house of the Lord rebuilt. And so it is that uh, you get to the outline of the text here and note what God does at the very beginning. Here is a call to repentance. Verse two, the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Don't be like your fathers whom the uh, prophets preach saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear me nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to all our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. And as God uh, issues this general call for repentance, here's something for the people to consider and here's something for them to think about. Compare this just for a moment to the first uh, verses of the book of Haggai. Look at the first verses, a couple of verses of Haggai, uh, beginning uh, chapter one, verse three. Uh, Chapter one and verse two, rather. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts saying, the people says this time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, you bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but nobody's warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put it in a hole in a a bag. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In the same kind of vein of repentance, Jeremiah, I keep saying Jeremiah, I've been studying Jeremiah all week. Um, Zechariah comes and he looks at these people and he says, you need to repent. You need to change your ways. Whereas Haggai looks at it and says, this is what you're doing. You're built living in your houses. The house of the Lord is lying in ruins. Jeremiah says, Zachariah says, consider your ways. Think about your prophets. Think about their fathers. Did they live forever? They didn't. The Lord's going to stand forever. And so it is we need to obey it and we need to continue it. Okay? When you see what God's doing in this general call to repentance, it's not just God saying, You need to change your ways. You need to find some way to do it. What God also does is in order to build the temple, he's going to issue uh, Zechariah a number of what we call night visions in order to really encourage the people and give them the shot in the arm, the self-confidence, so that they can go ahead and accomplish God's work. These are given in a lot of cases in apocalyptic language, and it's for us, uh, for us interesting, uh, interestingly enough to take a look at and to really uh, consider here at this time. Look at chapter uh, 1 of verse 7. Chapter 1 and verse 7. Remember the admonition that uh, Zechariah is making. Build the temple. Make sure that the temple gets done. But here's the shot in the arm. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, and in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, uh, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, I saw by night. And behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. And behind him were uh, horses, red and sorrel and white. Uh, Sorrel is kind of a reddish brown, uh, according to most commentators. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And so the angel who talked with me said, I'll show you what these are. The man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord. Underline that just for a moment. That's going to be important uh, when we come back and talk about it. So they answered the angel of the Lord, who stood stood among the myrtle trees, and said, We've walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is quietly resting. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. That's always a good thing when God can speak good and comforting words to somebody. So the angel spoke with me, said, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord, I am zealous for Jerusalem and and for Zion with great zeal. I'm exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry and they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy. Note this, my house shall be built in it. What's the message of Zechariah? Build the temple. It's kind of like the locust when we talk about Joel. Um, And says the Lord of hosts, my house shall be built in it. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities again shall spread out through prosperity. And the Lord again will comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. From this first vision, you have Jeremiah. I'm not going to get this. Zachariah, y'all just, anytime I say Jeremiah, just smile and move on. Okay. Zachariah, you have him coming along and there in evening having the first night vision. First night vision of these horses uh, standing under the myrtle trees. What you have to remember about apocalyptic language is there's not, there's a meaning that lies beneath the meaning. Okay. When God paints something in symbolic language, you have to understand that here is a level of this is what it says, but then there's always a level underneath it that says this is what it means. And how much better if it is that you have somebody to say this is what it means or this is what this represents or this is what this uh, this uh, this is uh, equivalent to, if you like. So you take the this is what it says, you peel that layer back and take a close look at this is what it means. Here's God in control of these horsemen or these, uh, these people that are um, the ones, verse 10, who are walking to and fro throughout the earth. What's their mission? What are they doing? They're the ones, verse 11, we've walked to and fro through the, out, uh, through the earth and behold, all the earth is quietly resting. Now, I learned from Daniel that God rules in the kingdoms of men. You see that message clearly, that God is the one that causes a nation to rise and causes another nation to fall. What it seems like these horsemen are doing is really going about and checking on things, but also accomplishing God's will in the earth. Now, if all the nations of the earth are quietly resting, as he says there in verse 11, then what's an optimal time to do? Sorry, if all the earth is resting, if everything's at rest, if there's not really any kind of global struggles or power that's, that's happening, what is it for the Jews an optimal time to do? Build the temple. There's the answer. And here's God giving them a shot in the arm, saying, Look, you know, I'm, I'm still ruling the kingdoms of men. God's giving a comforting answer. Uh, he speaks with uh, Zechariah, good and comforting words. The angel proclaims, says, Proclaiming thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm zealous, build the temple. Get it going. Build it up. It's time. Note just for a moment. I told you to underline "angel of the Lord," verse 11. You see the angel of the Lord in a number of different contexts throughout Scripture. What's fascinating about this? Well, let me get to this. Genesis 16. Genesis 16. You don't have to turn there. Just going to mention it. But Hagar, whenever she ran away from her mistress Sarah into the wilderness. The angel Lord met her there and appeared to her and said, "Hagar, what are you doing? Go back and spoke good and comforting words to her." And uh, Hagar called the place the the, the God who sees. Okay, angel Lord was there on that occasion. Angel angel Lord was there and talked to Abraham, whatever it was that he was about to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, Abraham had already reckoned uh, reckoned Isaac dead in his mind in Genesis 22, but it was the angel Lord that called out to him and said, "Abraham, don't do your don't do the lad any harm." The angel Lord did that. You have the angel Lord in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2 speaking to Moses from the burning bush. You have the angel of the Lord in Joshua 6 speaking to Joshua and saying, I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. Here's how you're going to take Jericho in Joshua 6. You have the angel Lord appearing um, for strength for Elijah after it was that he fled uh, from, uh, from Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 7. When the angel of the Lord appears, it's usually, in the Old Testament, a comfort for God's people. Here's the thing, though. Before Zechariah, write down in the margin of your Bible, Isaiah 37, 36. Isaiah 37, 36. Isaiah 37, 36 is the last time in the Old Testament that the angel of the Lord has been mentioned before Zechariah mentions it. Isaiah 37 and verse 36. It's the first appearance of the angel of the Lord in almost 200 years. What's the angel of the Lord counseling the people to do? Build the temple. That's exactly right. You have the angel of the Lord who's appearing in the book of Zechariah to give the shot in the arm to these people to say, it's time to get busy on the house of the Lord. All the nations are at rest. We've had on the the horsemen going to and fro throughout the earth. Um, And here's an opportunity for you to to accomplish God's will. Look at night vision number two, beginning verse 18. Night vision number two. Zechariah says, I raised my eyes and looked and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these? What's Zechariah interested in? This is what it says. This is what it means. Let's peel that back. What is the four horns? And he says, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and uh, Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen or four blacksmiths. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that nobody could lift up his head. But the craftsmen or the blacksmiths are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lift up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Second night vision. First one is, here is God as your prosperity. God's going to prosper you. He's given you the opportunity to. Second night vision is, here is God as the punisher of the nations who punished you. God's going to take care of it. When you see horns, particularly in apocalyptic literature, in uh, uh, the book of Daniel and prophet Zechariah and the book of Revelation, Horns represent power, authority, or kings in a lot of cases. And as he's looking at these horns and he's seeing these things, here come four blacksmiths or four uh, craftsmen, and they're coming to terrify, they're coming to deal with these horns, to scatter them and to, uh, to make sure that uh, Zechariah is saying, or God's saying through Zechariah, listen, don't worry about what you're going to hear. Don't hear about, worry about the saber rattling or the militaries or the threats or uh, any kind of rumors. What's the message? Build the temple. That's exactly right. Questions about the first two. Mercy, where's our time going? Night vision number three, chapter two, verses one through 13. I raised my eyes and looked and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. I said, where are you going? He said to measure Jerusalem to see what it's width and what it's length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out. Another angel was coming out to meet with him who said, run, speak to the young man uh, saying Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. He's saying Jerusalem's going to be repopulated for I says the Lord will be a wall of fire all about her and I will be the glory of her up up, flee from the land uh, to the north, for I've spread you out above the four, hev- uh, four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. You've got people that are coming home. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me uh, after glory to the nations which plunder you, who touches you with the apple of his eye. For surely I shall shake my hand against them, they shall become spoiled for the servants. Then you shall know that the Lord of the hosts has sent Uh, sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and dwelling in your midst. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me uh, to you. The Lord will take possession of Judah and his inheritance, the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. A number of different references. Um, Exodus 25 verse 8. Why did God want the tabernacle built? Why did God tell the people to build the tabernacle? Anybody remember? It was so he could dwell among his people. He told them to build him a house. Here you have God dwelling among his people. Here's God talking about... Uh, choosing Jerusalem and taking these things. He's got this man with a measuring line so that Jerusalem can be fitted just the way God wants it so that the people can build the temple and get it ready to go. Night vision number four. God is their purifier. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Vivid language. Here's Joshua. Here's Joshua. Here's Satan. The uh, Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And he said, see, I've removed your iniquity from you and will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put on a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him. And the angel Lord stood by. Here's the angel Lord again. Yeah, and this is a vision. This is what it says. What does it mean? Here's Satan. Here's Joshua. Joshua's clothed in filthy robes. What do we know Satan does? He what? What do we, what do we know that Satan does? He sins against God's people. He sins against God's people. Um, you get to Revelation uh, chapter 12, especially. What did they call him? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a tempter. What else? He's the accuser of our brethren. Satan here is looking at Joshua and saying, he's not fit to serve as high priest. Joshua is the high priest. He's not fit to serve. Look at his garments. Look at his clothes. And what does God do? He changes his clothes. Here's now a purified people. And as you read on into the context, we're not going to do that for time's sake, of course. But as you read on into context, you see that Joshua is symbolic for the rest of the people of Israel. Here's these people coming out of captivity. And as they uh, come back into Jerusalem, God is going to purify them. He's going to make them fit for service. We read about that in Haggai chapter 2 and especially Haggai chapter 3 last week. And as he makes them fit for service and purifies them, now it is that all of those old garments are taken away and now they're a holy people again. Now they're God's holy people. And God is going to bless them as He's uh, as he wants to do. God is their purifier. That's uh, number four, vision number four. Number five, chapter four. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who's wakened out of his sleep. And he said, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at the left. I sometimes have to draw, I've got a wide margin Bible, and so I kind of have to draw what I'm, is I'm, uh, the Bible is describing so that I can kind of get a good picture of it in your head. Here it is, this is free of charge, but this is kind of the same idea. You've got the seven lampstands or the seven, uh, the seven lamps. And you've got these pipes, seven pipes that go from one bowl uh, down into the lampstand. Then you've got these two olive trees, one on either side, that are uh, feeding this bowl, which are feeding the lamps in turn. It's quite a contraption if you kind of take a look at it. Um, anybody ever heard of a perpetual motion machine? I say that's impossible because of you know friction and a number of different things, degradation of the parts. But you know, <laughs> this is kind of a perpetual motion machine sort. The more that the tree produces the, the, um, uh, the oil, the, the olives, the more it is that the olives are squeezed in the bowl, the more it is that it was run down to the pipe and the more it is that the lamp has fuel in order to keep going. What's the message? God is their power source. God is their power. And as he looks at this, here's again, this is what it says. This is the vision. What does it mean? Um, Jeremiah, or Zechariah, verse four, I answered and I spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? What's he looking for? I'm looking for the symbolism in what it is that I've been shown. The angel who talked with me answered me and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You were a plain. And he shall bring forth with a capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. What's going to be the moving power behind Zerubbabel finishing the temple? It's the spirit of God. It's the presence, the power of God that's going to keep the lamp lit and keep the lamp going. Uh, verse 10, for who is despised the day of small things? I don't want you to think that this is a little matter in building this temple. For these seven rejoiced to see the plumb line and the handers rubble. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And then I answered and said to them, what are the two lampstand or two olive trees at the right and a lampstand at at its left? And I further answered and said to them, what are these two branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes, which the golden uh, oil drains? And he said to me and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This seems to represent, number one, the high priest that God had chosen, Joshua. It seems to also represent the political leader that's going to get the temple done. You've got the religious leader. You've got the political leader that are both Feeding this by the spirit of God and it is that God's word and God's mission is are still going forward and still being accomplished as the temple is being built. All right. Please don't lose the focus of what we're talking about. We're talking about building the temple. If I begin to look at this apocalyptic language and try and say, "Ooh, well, this represents uh, the New World Order, the the Illuminati. And this is, you know, this is this, this. You miss the point. Because the whole point is Zechariah trying to motivate these people in order to get them to build the temple. If we start trying to assign other meanings to it, then what's just immediately here in the text about Zechariah saying, what is this? Do you not know what this is? No, I don't. Well, this is this. And we're trying to assign a completely different meaning to it, kind of like sometimes uh, late night evangelists have a tendency. I wonder why it is that they have those people on, you know, at the middle of the night. I don't know if they sound more coherent to people that, you know, have been up for, you know, 18 hours and they're sitting there watching that, you know. Oh, this is just like the prophet Zechariah prophesying about this t- this disaster or this thing or this thing or this thing. You know what? We miss the message of Zechariah if we forget that it was written to them first. Are there practical applications for us? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Is there hope in God powering us and keeping us building the temple of the body of Christ as, um first First Corinthians chapter three, verse seventeen talks about that we are the temple of God, and as we build our temple, can we imagine that uh, it's God, the same God, who uh, motivated and helped these people that He's going to continue to help us and motivate us as we uh, as we continue to go? The answer is yes. there's a lot of lessons here, but we can't get so hung up in the apocalyptic language that we miss what he's saying to these people during his time, Yeah. All right. Questions or comments about that? I've gone for many, 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 many years hearing and speaking the word Zerubbabel instead of the way you pronounce it. Yeah, uh, that's. Did, did you? Did, did there is some kind of authority on the pronunciation of that word? Probably, but I'm not it. Yeah, um, I sounded out kind of the way that it. Uh, Zerubbabel uh, literally means um, seed of Babel. Um, seed of Babylon, uh, and so you've got the Babel at the very end of it, um, you know, Tower of Babel, Zerubbabel, I, yeah, I don't know, it depends on if I put the right emphasis on the right syllable, so. okay. sorry, that's your that's your laugh for the evening, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, Danny, um, there probably is a correct way to pronounce it, but I honestly don't know what it is, so, um, you got night vision number next, uh, chapter five. Number six, God is their purger. God's going to purge the evil out of Jerusalem. Here's a flying scroll. Never seen a flying scroll. I don't know what that looks like. He says, verse two, what do you see? And I said, I see a flying scroll. It's uh, length is 20 cubits. It's width 10 cubits. He said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to the scroll. Every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. God's going to send out the curse. That's what it is. This is what it represents. This is what it means. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. Here's God removing the curse and removing the evil out of Jerusalem. So it is that people can what? Let's build the temple. Exactly right. Um, night vision number seven begins at verse five. Here's a woman who's in a basket. Um, they put a lead disc on top of this basket, this ephah. And he says, verse eight, what is this? Here's a woman sitting in the basket. He says, this is wickedness. He thrust her down in the basket and threw the lead cover of its mouth and I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming from the winds of their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. And I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? He said, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. Shinar, where Babel was. So kind of references back in Genesis 11, where, um, where they built the Tower of Babel. I don't know. Um, he says the basket will be set on its base when it's there. Build the temple. Wickedness, evil has been removed. But lastly, what he's going to talk about in the last night vision is God is their peace. Chapter six, verses one through eight. I turned to raise my eyes and looked and behold, four chariots were coming from between the two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze with the first chariot were red horses, the second chariot, black horses, the third chariot, white horses, the fourth chariot, dappled horses, strong steeds. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered, said to me, these are the four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, the white are going after them. The dappled are going to the south country. The strong seeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go walk to and fro throughout the earth. And they went and walked through and through throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, see, these go to the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Here's God's mission. Here's God's people. They're going to go up to the north. They're going to go down to the south. They're going to take care of whatever it is that's that's troubling Israel, Um, maybe to the north of the land of Israel, maybe to the south of the land of Israel. But here's the message. You people get busy and build a temple. Question, what book does this sound like? Let me narrow it down. What New Testament book does some of this language sound like? It sounds like Revelation. Flip over just for a moment to Revelation. Now, again, realize that this is not delving into every single little detail and trying to understand what it is that we're talking about. But, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that the more you know your Old Testament, and especially the more you know about the Old Testament prophets, the more it is that you're going to understand some of the language and some of the uses of the symbols in the book of Revelation, It's the same thing. This is what it says. This is what it means. Revelation is, um, the first word is apocalypsis. What word does it sound like? Apocalypse. And we think apocalypse, end of the world type of thing. Apocalypse is just simply an unveiling. It's a pulling back of the curtain to paint the picture of whatever's there on the stage. It's nothing that has to do with uh, perhaps the end of the world as we think of it. But it's God about to do something. On the earth. It's God about to do something for his people. You look at chapter 6. You look at chapter 6. And you see, now I saw, John says, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. He opened the second seal, and I heard the second living creature say, Come and see, another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to uh, take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. I opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a, uh, a creature voice, the creature in the midst, uh, four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and don't harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the vo- uh, voice of the fourth creature saying, come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse, the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him and power is given to him over a quart of the earth to kill with the sword and hunger and death. And by the beast of the earth, as you look at these things and you see these four different horsemen, People immediately want to begin to rub their hands together and say, all right, let's see what we can do in modern day society and talking about assigning meaning to all four of these different horses. First of all, did you notice they're the same colors as the ones that went out here in the book of Zechariah? I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I understand that if I know a little bit more about what it was that they were in Zechariah, then it's probably going to help me a little bit more in Revelation. What you'll also find is here's people that'll look at it and say, all right, here's the devil getting reared up. You know what? The devil hadn't made his appearance here in the book of Revelation just yet. In fact, the uh, the devil's not going to get uh, going until you know, primarily chapter 12. You begin to see him uh, making war with uh, different, different people. So here's what it says. What does it mean? It's still God ruling in the kingdoms of men. It's still God allowing things to happen here on the earth. Things like pestilence and things like fire and things like famine and things like death. And God allowing those things to happen, well, what's the message of the book of Revelation? Victory. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, Revelation 2 and verse 10. I know what you're going through is bad. I know that it's about to get a lot worse, but I want you to understand that as the Lamb, who's the Lamb? Jesus, the lamb is unloosing all of these seals off of this book. The lamb is holding the scroll. The lamb has got the future of mankind in his hand. He's got the future of the church in his hand. As he unlooses each one of these seals, something happens. Something comes out of it. But who's in control? It's still God. It's still Jesus. It's still the lamb. He's still got the scroll. And whatever comes out of that, the faithful have nothing to fear. You see? You see? And so where people want to rub their hands together, and wring their hands and and begin to say, oh, look, it's the seventh seal, you know, and here's the sign of this and this and this. You miss the message of Revelation and you miss the fact that God's got the whole thing in his hand and God's in control. And everything else is just about us remaining faithful to his cause. What's God's message to us today? Be faithful, but build the temple. (laughs) Build the temple, the church, edify, build up one another, encourage one another, evangelize, go and tell the people about the good news that they can be the children of God. Build the temple. God says, don't worry about the future. I've got it in my hands. You do what I've told you.